Well, good evening and welcome to the second of the Edward Farnham Lecture Series given in 2005 by Professor Alex Filipenko. My name is Bruce Drain. I'm Professor of Astronomy here, and I'd like to just introduce uh, Dr. Filipenko. Uh, Alex Filipenko got his degree, uh, his undergraduate degree in physics at the University of California at Santa Barbara and went on to get his PhD in astronomy at Caltech. In 1984, two years later, he joined the faculty at the University of California at Berkeley, where he's been ever since. Uh, he has been carrying out forefront research in a number of fields, uh, including at the study of active galactic nuclei, supernova explosions. Those of you who had the good fortune to be here yesterday heard about some of uh, the exciting things going on in that field. You'll hear some more of them tomorrow night if you come. He's been working on, more recently, on the phenomenon of gamma ray bursts, and finally, the connection of the above to cosmology, also something to be touched upon tomorrow night. So there are treats uh, yet in store. Now, Alex is a rare combination of somebody who's recognized by his peers for his forefront research in a broad, on a broad range of, of leading-edge astrophysical, astronomical questions of the day. So he's working on a number of problems, and the work he does is work which the rest of his peers pay attention to because it's important, it's carefully done, and he has a good taste of picking out the important questions to work on. But he's also the, somebody with a rare talent for conveying exciting research ideas and research developments to wide audiences. And that, his gift for doing that has been recognized many times by teaching awards at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he, you know, among them, this is not a complete list, but among them he's been voted by the students at the University of California, Berkeley, four times, not just once, but four times as the best professor on campus. That's pretty, you know, for a university as large as Berkeley, to achieve that, that award, that recognition one time would be astonishing. To do it four times, four separate years, uh, is remarkable. Uh, so most recently, 2003 and 2004, he won this award. The 2005 results are not yet in, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a repeat. Now, those of you uh, who ventured forth on this snowy night to the second of the Edward Farnham Lecture Series, I think are not going to be disappointed. You're going to have an exciting lecture on an exciting topic, the topic being enigmatic gamma ray bursts, the birth cries of black holes. Alex. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, for that w very warm introduction. I wish I could say the same for the outside conditions, and I congratulate those of you who braved the storm to come and hear me tonight. I was half expecting to show up and uh, maybe have, you know, Bruce who introduces me and maybe a few other people who happen to want to find um, shelter from the snow and wandered into this room, you know. But I, I, I do appreciate all of you making out here on, on this night, and I hope you don't get stuck on your way home, okay? Uh, just, just so I'll know what sort of things to cover a little bit more thoroughly or less thoroughly, could I see a show of hands of people who heard my lecture last night? Okay, okay, actually, most of you. How many of you did not? It's okay if you didn't, but a few. Okay, so I'll, I'll review a few things, but I won't, I won't dwell on them because I do have a lot of material to cover tonight, and I will cover some of these things again peripherally tomorrow night. But the whole theme of my series of lectures is uh, stellar explosions and uh, the connection to studying cosmology 
the large-scale structure and evolution of the universe. So today, what I'd like to do is follow along the topic that I discussed last night, that is stellar explosions. And tonight's explosions are going to be particularly enigmatic phenomena in that for the better part of 20 or even 30 years, they were not at all understood. And in the past few years, there's been a burst of activity and understanding in part because fantastic new telescopes have been built that have opened our eyes to what these weird, bizarre gamma ray bursts are. And, um, you know, to sort of, to sort of give away the secret, we now think that gamma ray bursts are the birth cries of black holes, or possibly so. We're not absolutely certain yet, and in such a rapidly changing field, it could well be that five years from now, I'll come back and I'll tell you that they are something else entirely, but who knows, I don't know. But the story begins in the late 1960s with the Vela satellites. These were launched by the U.S. in order to see whether the Soviet Union was breaking the nuclear test ban treaty. Okay, so we're not supposed to, to test nuclear weapons. Um, and we weren't sure whether the Soviets were breaking this promise not to test nuclear weapons. Now, nuclear weapons emit gamma rays, and so one way of looking for violations of this treaty would be to see bursts of gamma rays coming from different parts, you know, of either the Earth or maybe this was, maybe they were doing atmospheric tests or something. But in any case, looking for bursts of gamma rays would be a way of, of finding violations of this nuclear test ban treaty. And what they found were no obvious violations, yet in the sky, roughly once per day, the Vela satellite did see a burst of gamma rays. So this is supposed to indicate a burst roughly once a day from apparently random locations. And they were clearly not directed toward the Earth. They were in the sky, well above the atmosphere, far, far away. Um, you know, so they were, they were not bombs that, that humans were, were exploding. And so these became quite a mystery. And it was soon found that these bursts of gamma rays, and again, gamma rays are highly energetic radiation. I mentioned them yesterday, but they are more energetic forms of electromagnetic radiation than even X-rays are, okay? So again, nuclear um, decay emits gamma rays and, and things like that. But anyway, if you plot the number of gamma rays per second versus time, it was found that these gamma ray bursts come in two main types. Three are shown here, but there were two main types. The long duration bursts, where you see that though the burst is very erratic in nature, it lasts for up to a few minutes, okay? And then the short bursts, which last less than one or two seconds. And then there was a class of sort of intermediate bursts, those that are, that are two or three seconds long, and we now think that they're either short, long bursts or long, short bursts, okay? But we don't think that they're a, a, a third distinct class of their own. So this is an early plot, but we now focus our attention on the long and the short duration bursts. So at a rate of around one per day, gradually these things accumulated and people started to look at their distribution in the sky. Where do they appear in the sky? That can offer a clue to their origin. 
And I'm going to make plots of the sky that might be a little bit foreign to you at first. But as way of introduction, let me show you a plot of a familiar object, the Earth, in the particular coordinate system that I'm going to use. This oval here shows the whole Earth. Continents may be distorted in shape, but they're all there. There's South America, North America, Asia, Africa, Australia, and, you know, here's the Pacific Ocean. So this sort of wraps around like that. The North Pole is at the top, the South Pole is at the bottom, and the whole Earth is plotted here. And this particular plot has a very desirable characteristic, and that is that equal areas, like here, this, this area is the same size as any other area of the same dimensions anywhere in this plot. And that's not the case, for example, in the Mercator projection, where you've often seen Greenland looks absolutely enormous and Antarctic looks enormous and all that. That's not an equal area projection, the Mercator projection, whereas this is an equal area projection. So this projects the continents in, in roughly their correct areas. So if you look at what the Milky Way galaxy looks like in such a map, it looks something like this. The Milky Way galaxy is a flattened so-called disk galaxy with a bulge in the middle and there are spiral arms in this pancake, which are much more easily seen if you're above or below the pancake rather than looking at it from along the side. But when you look in the sky and you see this bright Milky Way, you're essentially seeing this, you know, parts of this pancake. We're, we're orbiting a star right around here somewhere in the middle of this pancake. And so when you look along the pancake, you see the Milky Way. When you look perpendicular to the pancake, you don't see very many stars. So this is the Milky Way on one of these all-sky projections. And if gamma-ray bursts were objects that fundamentally came from our own galaxy and fundamentally from where many of the stars are in our own galaxy, that is in the disk here, not so much in the halo. There are stars in the halo, but they're ancient and they're low in mass and people didn't think that they give rise to such an energetic phenomenon. So most people thought, well, these are probably some sort of massive stars going kaboom or something. And massive stars tend to be in the plane here. So people expected that the distribution of the gamma ray bursts would be in the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. But over the years, as more of these were detected, people gradually found that they come from random places throughout the sky with about the same probability of coming from any one location as any other location. Because again, this is an equal area projection. And the fact that all these dots are randomly distributed on this map means that no particular place in the sky is favored as the origin of the gamma ray bursts. So this sort of threw some cold water on the hypothesis that they come from the plane of our Milky Way galaxy, which, you know, is way down here somewhere. So people abandoned that hypothesis and said, well, maybe they come from some extended halo around the Milky Way. If you look at places way up here or down there, it's intrinsically a roughly spherical distribution, perhaps, although here it's shown as an oval. So maybe they come from up there somewhere. And in that case, if some halo or corona surrounds our entire galaxy, then we would see these things equally distributed throughout this plot. Okay. 
So there was the halo or corona hypothesis. But there was also the hypothesis that these things come from incredibly far away. Things that come in from incredibly far away also would have a random distribution as seen by us because things that come from very far away don't care about the shape of our galaxy. So there were these two hypotheses of the galactic but halo origin and the cosmological origin where they come from very, very far away. And people debated this issue for the better part of 30 years, ever since the discovery of these things in 1967, uh, although for a while the government kept secret about these things because they might have been, you know, nuclear bombs going off. So astronomers didn't really learn about these things until the early 70s. But about 25 years later, there was this, this all culminated in a great debate uh, held on April 22nd, 1995, where one camp thought that these things were basically associated with this corona or halo of our galaxy. Another camp uh, thought that they were cosmological, and those were the two debaters whose pictures I'll show in a minute. And then there were scattered in the audience people who don't have many friends, and they thought that there's something, you know, completely different. They're neither cosmological nor, nor associated with our galaxy. And this great debate was held actually to commemorate a debate that was held 75 years earlier on the nature of the so-called spiral nebulae, which some people thought are galaxies like our own and some people thought are external island universes. I'll have more to say about them later on tomorrow. And the proponent of the cosmological hypothesis was Bogdan Paczynski, a professor of astrophysics here at Princeton University. And the proponent of the galactic hypothesis was uh, Don Lamb, a professor of astrophysics at the University of Chicago. And each argued his own case quite eloquently. Um, and many people had contributed you know, to the arguments that went into this debate, but they were the people who, who debated uh, the issues on that fine day in April. And I think it's fair to say that everyone that heard that debate was not convinced that either side had presented a completely compelling argument. And the stakes are high, okay? I mean, either these things are in our galaxy and hence pretty energetic and powerful, but not, you know, extraordinary, or they're coming from a billion light years away, in which case the measured apparent brightness coupled with the vast distance would mean that these things are among the most energetic phenomena known in the universe after the birth of the universe itself, the Big Bang. You know, so they're, only, they're either pretty energetic or they're almost unfathomably energetic. And indeed, it was the absolutely stupendous energies that you needed if you assumed that these things are cosmological. That's one of the arguments that physicists argued, you know, means that they must be associated with our galaxy because no one knew of a mechanism that could produce so much energy if they were billions of light years away. All right, but we really needed, you know, new data. Well, besides the, you know, this is not readable, but it's not meant to be. <laughs> besides the basic question of are they from very far away or are they from within our own galaxy, that's the fundamental question, there then arose all these questions of, well, physically, what could these things be, um, you know, if they're in our galaxy or very, very far away? And here I show you the papers that were published 
in the 20-year interval from 1973, when these things were first made known to astronomers, to 1992, when this particular paper was published. And there are 118 ideas in 20 years. Now, obviously, not all of them can be correct, all right? In fact, probably most of them are incorrect. But in fact, the, the chair of the astrophysics department here, Scott Tremaine and his group, had a theory of their own. They thought that maybe these things are comets that pass close to a neutron star, get disrupted by the gravitational tidal effect of the neutron star, so it pulls on the near side of the comet more than it pulls on the far side, and that can actually disrupt the comet. How many of you remember the collision of comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 with Jupiter 10 years ago or so? Yeah, that comet passed close to Jupiter, got tidally disrupted by Jupiter, and on the next pass, it crashed into Jupiter. Well, Scott Tremaine in 1986 thought of this idea, but with a comet being disrupted and then hitting a neutron star, and he thought maybe that produces bursts of gamma rays. It was good, as good as any, any, any other of these ideas, you know. And there are some real winners around here. I mean, you know, explosions of black holes or neutron stars and all sorts of crazy things, you know. So there was no lack of, of ideas. And, and in the 10 or 12 years since then, there's been even more ideas, okay. In fact, I, there was a little sheet of paper here. Did it, did it fall or did you have it, Bruce? Where did it go? I had a little, I had a quote here that I wanted to read. Maybe you picked it up, perhaps. No? Shoot. I had it right here just before I, uh, I meant to have it as a PowerPoint slide, but uh, that's the most bizarre thing. Okay, well, the quote was something like, uh, Mal Ruderman at Columbia University said that, uh, of course, astronomers, uh, should be uh, should uh, remember that there are many many untapped ideas that do not appear in this list. But he he put it in a much more funny way. So it's really the most bizarre thing. It's like a black hole came and uh, and uh, it's the funniest thing, right? No, no, it's not not anywhere. No, that's a different pile. I'll tell you about that later. But. That is truly bizarre. Okay, no big deal, no big deal, but it's, it's, it's really a mystery because it was here just before Bruce came up and it's no longer there. Okay, one of the interesting ideas was that this was uh, the evaporation of black holes. And this was an idea put forward by Stephen Hawking even before, um, you know, the discovery, I mean, it wasn't motivated by the discovery of gamma ray bursts. He just theoretically said that black holes might evaporate through a process that I won't go into in detail, but it has to do with the quantum mechanics of, of particles and antiparticles being created within and in the vicinity of a black hole. And in some cases, some of these guys can escape, and the other guy goes in with what we see as negative energy. It's a weird concept. And this negative energy going into a black hole decreases the black hole's mass, and the difference in mass comes out as particles escaping, and this is essentially a quantum mechanical evaporation of black holes. And Hawking said long ago that this process accelerates 
as the evaporation progresses, because the mass of the black hole becomes progressively smaller and smaller, and the rate of evaporation increases as the mass of the black hole gets smaller. And so in the end, Hawking said, you would get this explosion, and it would be a high-energy explosion characterized mostly by the emission of gamma rays. So he, in a sense, predicted the existence of bursts of gamma rays if black holes really do evaporate. Well, the problem is, is that this process is non-negligible only for little tiny black holes that may or may not have been produced shortly after the Big Bang. We don't know of any tiny black holes that were produced by any astrophysical process recently. We only know of pretty big and ultra-big black holes. But for this process to work, you need miniature black holes, which Hawking postulated were produced by the Big Bang. No one really knows whether such black holes were produced by the Big Bang, but he postulated that if they were, then right around now they should be exploding and producing gamma-ray bursts. And so there was great hope on Hawking's part that gamma-ray bursts as observed would end up being the evaporation of black holes. And sadly for Stephen Hawking, it's quite clear from the properties of gamma-ray bursts that though we don't know exactly what produces them, we definitely know that they are not evaporating miniature black holes. Their properties just in detail do not at all agree with this theory um, other than just being bursts of gamma rays. But the, de the devil is in the details, and the details just clearly don't work out. So whatever they are, they're not evaporating miniature black holes, but that at least was one of the interesting hypotheses that came up over the years. Well, with time, uh, an instrument called BATSI on the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory detected nearly 3,000 gamma ray bursts over the course of a number of years. And by the time they had nearly 3,000 of these things, it became very clear that these things are so uniformly, so randomly distributed in the sky that they almost certainly couldn't be associated with the halo of our Milky Way galaxy. Because if you'll recall the Milky Way galaxy, our sun is sort of close to the edge. So if there's a spherical halo that just barely envelops the whole thing, we're closer to one edge than to the other edge, and there would have been a preponderance of gamma-ray bursts in that direction where most of the halo is. So the only way the halo proponents could salvage their hypothesis was by postulating that the halo actually extends much further than had been previously thought into a vast corona, you know, surrounding this halo, within which we're nearly in the center. Then you could account for this random or isotropic distribution of gamma-ray bursts in the sky. But I think it's fair to say that by early 1997, when this map came out, most astronomers said, wow, that's pretty good evidence that whatever these things are, they come from very, very far away. All right, this map, to me, you know, was pretty much the clincher. But the way to really know, of course, is to find some direct indication that individual gamma-ray bursts are coming from exceedingly far away. And that breakthrough came in 1997, following the 1996 launch of a Dutch-Italian satellite collaboration called BEPO-SACS. That satellite was able to detect 
gamma ray bursts and localize them pretty well. That is, tell pretty well precisely where they're coming from. Something I forgot to mention was that in the maps that I showed previously, though we knew that the distribution was random, we didn't really know precisely where each one came from. Like that blue one there might have come from an area about this size. And this red one here might have come from an area around that size. You know, so the positions that Batsy and other satellites provided were not very accurate, okay? And you couldn't tell exactly where the thing was just from where it landed. It could have been there, or there, or there. You don't really know. You just knew it's approximately there and not there. So astronomers had never found any other object that could be undeniably associated with a gamma ray burst, but at another wavelength, like an optical wavelength or X-rays or ultraviolet or infrared. If they had been able to associate an object at some other wavelength with a gamma ray burst, then they could study that object in that other area of the electromagnetic spectrum, which might last longer. Maybe the infrared light lasts longer, so you have more time to study it, not just a few tens of seconds. And the inability to pinpoint exactly where these things were was a great handicap in studying gamma ray bursts, because we just knew approximately where they were, but not exactly where they were. And Beppo Sachs was able to make huge progress in pinpointing where these things are. And in fact, the, the one that sort of blew the whole field open was the burst of February 28, 1997, where Beppo Sachs detected the gamma ray burst and an X-ray sensitive detector on the satellite took a picture of roughly that part of the sky where the gamma ray burst occurred. And lo and behold, they saw a bright X-ray point-like object as well, which then quickly faded with time, all right? So that was fantastic. There it is at X-ray energies. And at X-ray energies, for reasons I won't go into, you can tell much more precisely and accurately where an object occurred. With gamma rays, you don't know exactly where it occurred because you can't pinpoint very well with existing telescopes where gamma rays are coming from. But with X-rays, you can tell where they're coming from. And lo and behold, they found this spot of light with some coordinates in the sky, like latitude and longitude. And other astronomers using optical and infrared telescopes then pointed their telescopes to that location in the sky. And lo and behold, they found optical and radio and ultraviolet and infrared counterparts. Here is an optical photograph, a negative actually. The bright, the, the dark things are bright. You know, the, the white sky is dark. But anyway, here is a fading optical transient associated with that gamma ray burst. It's next to this fuzzy little thing, which turns out to be a distant galaxy. But see, now you see it. Now you don't. It rapidly faded over the course of about a week. But it's the, it's the accuracy and precision provided by Beppo Sachs that allowed optical astronomers to train their telescopes on the right part of the sky instead of, you know, the wrong part of the sky. And they were able to see through multiple pictures that there was a fading optical afterglow associated with this gamma ray burst. By the way, gamma ray bursts are named in 
according to the date that they were discovered, this one was 970228. But of course, they're not Y2K compliant because in a few decades, you know, when we find gamma ray burst, you know, of whatever, um, April 25th, 2088, that one will be 880425 and we won't know whether it's 2088 or 1988. So they should become Y2K compliant. They should put the 19 in front of that, but uh, they'll have to worry about that in a few decades, okay? And then more of these things were found to be associated with, with uh, the gamma rays. In other words, Beppo-Sachs was able to pinpoint through its X-ray telescope additional gamma ray bursts, and here was one, a particularly powerful one, 1997-12-14, where this is uh, now a couple of photographs taken from the Keck telescopes in Hawaii, now you see it, now you don't at optical wavelengths, okay? And here is a nice one whose image was taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. And of course, the Hubble Space Telescope allows us to pinpoint exactly where these things are. And that will provide one of the next clue to the puzzle. We found that undeniably these things are associated with faint distant galaxies. You get a hint of that already in this picture. There's the optical afterglow associated with the gamma ray burst, and the sharp-eyed among you will see a little bit of fuzz right there and right there. That's a faint galaxy within which that gamma ray burst probably occurred. Okay, so the Hubble really showed that these things were in these faint distant galaxies. And another breakthrough came at radio wavelengths where the very large array in the deserts of New Mexico was used to observe some of these things, and what they found was that at least one of these things that was particularly well observed was expanding enormously quickly. It grew physically from a very, very small size to an enormous size so quickly that whatever it is that's expanding has to be doing so at close to the speed of light, so-called relativistically, okay, because you can't get from a small thing to a big thing without expanding really, really, really fast. So not only were these things bright and energetic, but they were clearly, the, the mechanism causing whatever this thing is, was clearly accelerating material to speeds close to the speed of light. So this is an amazing particle accelerator. And that discovery was made with the very large array. An amazing discovery was made with a telescope that any of you could build with just a few telephoto lenses mounted on a common board like this. These four telephoto lenses, called Razzi, uh, look at a fairly large part of the sky all at the same time, and they just sort of watch the sky as it drifts across during the night, and they just keep on taking snapshots. No matter what happens, they take snapshot, 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 snapshot. And it turns out that they captured one of these gamma ray bursts in the first couple of seconds, well, the first few tens of seconds after the gamma rays themselves were detected. So here are two photographs, one taken on January, July 5th, 1994, where there's clearly nothing much going on in this part of the sky. And then on January 23rd, 1999, there's a new optically emitting object. And um, this one was actually imaged the same day that the gamma rays themselves were found. Indeed, the image comes from just 
I forgot, 10 or 20 seconds after the gamma rays were detected because these guys were just sort of snapping photographs of, of the sky, okay, of large area of the, of the sky. So, uh, so they found it, uh, the optical afterglow, and then the Hubble Space Telescope imaged it, and sure enough, as I've hinted already, this thing was associated with a fuzzy blob here, which turns out to be an extremely distant galaxy. This is one of the most distant galaxies known. It's um, roughly 10 billion light years away, 10 or 11 billion light years away. And here's this bright object that can be seen in this incredibly distant galaxy. And from the ROTC measurements, they figured out that when it was at its brightest, it was so bright that someone looking through a good pair of binoculars at the right time in the right location of the sky would have seen this thing with a good pair of binoculars. In other words, you're seeing an explosion with a good pair of binoculars that's near the edge of the observable parts of the universe. That is really bright, okay? That just shows you the power of these explosions. But of course, to have seen this, you know, the old thing, the old saying, location, 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 it applies here. You've got to be looking at the right place at the right time and, you know, with the right pair of binoculars, I guess. But any old pair would have, would have done. Well, so this already provided lots of good clues that uh, these things are coming from distant galaxies. But we'd like to find many, many more of them with these optical and radio afterglows in order to study a statistical sample and really learn more about these objects as a class. So in the 1990s, a fantastic satellite went up called HETI, the High Energy Transient Explorer, and it, it uh, orbits the Earth, and it finds these gamma-ray bursts and pinpoints their location and then sends a signal down to the Earth which then gets sent to a central distribution station that then sends the coordinates of the gamma ray bursts to observatories throughout the Earth. So the HETI detects the gamma ray burst, pinpoints its location, sends that signal down to a central ground station, which then transmits to one from which all others are fed. And you might say, well, this would only work if the receiver were visible by the HETI satellite. But the people who built it were very clever. They used a network of satellites. Um, I'm sorry, they, 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 they used a network of ground-based receiving stations so that the HETI satellite is always above one or more of these receivers, basically a giant radio dish on the ground. And there's one little place there where there doesn't happen to be a, a receiver. But most of the rest of the Earth is, uh, is covered. So basically, all the time that HETI was operating, whenever it detected a gamma-ray burst, it could send the coordinates down to the Earth, which would then send it to some central distribution station in Baltimore, I think, and then that would send it to all these waiting telescopes. And the telescope that I talked about yesterday that my group built in order to search for exploding stars, it also has been programmed to receive these gamma-ray burst coordinates as determined by the HETI satellite. By the way, that was HETI number two. HETI number one failed. It, it, it failed on liftoff or something, or the, or the hatch 
never opened or something. It, you know, sometimes things go wrong. But anyway, um, Hetty number two worked very well. In fact, it's still working. And our little telescope at Lick Observatory is programmed to receive these coordinates, and it then halts whatever it's doing. It's sitting there looking at some supernova in one part of the sky, and it slews over to the part of the sky where Hetty said that there's a gamma ray burst, and it starts taking a multitude of snapshot images. And occasionally we're lucky, and the object was within our field of view. Now, Hetty could locate some of the gamma ray bursts quite accurately, others not so accurately, so sometimes the thing was way out here somewhere. But a few of them we caught. Notice that little thing there, and later on, it's no longer there. See? Look at this little arc of stars, this little crown of stars. There's an extra star there that faded away about an hour later. So that was the optical afterglow of GRB 0283, just you know, August of a couple of years ago. And our most, well, and so we followed it uh, for a number of hours and found that it declined quite quickly in brightness by a factor of several tens in just one day. But our greatest success came with GRB 2002, December 11th. We were busy exposing robotically on a supernova called 2002HE, and the telescope was in the middle of one of its rare long exposures, a so-called follow-up exposure, where it was getting a, a good measurement of the supernova, and that takes about 10 minutes. Rather than searching for supernovae, that takes about 10 or 20 seconds. So it was doing a 10-minute exposure of a supernova. Um, with two minutes left in the exposure, the telescope received the gamma-ray burst alert from Hetty, it then started slewing over across the sky to the nominal position of the gamma ray burst. It was nearly as far across the sky as it could have been, so it took quite a while for the telescope to get over there. And meanwhile, the telescope was still exposing, but fortunately, most of the time, it was exposing on the dark insides of the dome. But then the telescope got to the desired position, and then finally the dome rotated so that the telescope was pointing out of the dome shutter. And the last 40 or 50 seconds of this 10-minute exposure, the thing was exposing on the gamma-ray burst. So this is an area of the sky that does not exist, because this is a composite photograph of the area of the sky containing this supernova and this galaxy and some stars, and the other area of the sky, you know, nearly diametrically opposite of it, and so this is sort of a double exposure, and so this area of the sky doesn't exist. And in the next exposure, you can see that, you know, most, many of, half of the stars are gone. You know, so you could say, wow, look at all these exploding stars and stuff, and gamma ray bursts, but, but that's not fair. There, there's one gamma ray burst here, and, you know, and one exploding star, and there's the gamma ray burst all alone in the second photograph that the telescope took, and the supernova is now gone. Anyway, we got many, many photographs of this thing. There it's barely visible now. And indeed, this plot of brightness versus time is still, to this day, the most complete, well-sampled record of the decline of the optical outburst associated with a gamma-ray burst. 
A few telescopes have caught them a little bit earlier. Um, in fact, Rotsi got one on the rise and on the decline, but it got a point every, you know, every, I don't know, 10 or 20 minutes, whereas in, in just a few minutes' time, we already had many measurements, and in 10 minutes' time, we had 20 measurements. So we're very proud of this particular series of observations, and we are continuing with the Katzman Automatic Imaging Telescope to follow up on gamma-ray bursts. Okay, so then when Hetty had basically discovered a bunch of these things and people started studying them in detail, the consensus model that arose, I mean, not everyone subscribed to it, but a lot of astronomers agreed that it, it has many elements of, of truth, is the so-called fireball model, where there's some sort of a dramatic engine that produces um, a, a rapidly moving bunch of matter, you know, moving at close to the speed of light. And it does this a bunch of times, so it kind of ejects bunches of matter. And it ejects them with different speeds, so that occasionally faster ones can overtake slower ones, because you're ejecting bunches of material. And when a faster one overtakes a slower one, you get what's called an internal shock, and that happens at very high energies, because these things are blasting into each other. And gamma rays are produced by that internal shock. Then eventually, that material hits the medium around the stars, the so-called interstellar medium. You know, space isn't completely empty. It's filled with gas and dust from which eventually stars form. In fact, Professor Drain is an expert in this area. So this stuff hits the interstellar medium and creates a collision, and that's what produces the radio, optical, x-ray, infrared afterglow that's visible for a considerably longer amount of time than are the gamma rays visible, okay? So this is this fireball model. But there still was some controversy as to what is it that sends these pulses of material out in the first place. So what people started doing was saying, well, look, maybe a clue could be provided by the location of gamma-ray bursts within galaxies. And here I show you again this one, GRB 990123. A detailed study of this galaxy shows that this burst occurred in a part of the galaxy that contains many very massive stars, 10 or 20 or 30 times the mass of our sun. Big, huge guys compared to our puny little sun. And studies of other gamma-ray bursts localized by Hetty uh, and with optical telescopes subsequently showed that, in general, at least the so-called long-duration gamma-ray bursts, the ones that last a few minutes, tend to be associated with regions within galaxies that are producing lots and lots of massive stars. So this suggests that at least the long-duration gamma-ray bursts are somehow associated with massive stars, probably the death of massive stars. So what emerged was a hypothesis that perhaps extremely massive stars develop an iron core, like the one I discussed yesterday, which collapses but instead of forming a normal supernova, a normal ejection of the material surrounding the core, somehow, in addition to the normal ejection, a jet forms. 
And if we are looking along this jet, like this laser pointer, I won't shine it into my eyes, then we see brilliant light. But if the jet is pointing the wrong way, then maybe we don't see it or we hardly see it at all. So let me take you step by step through this process. Looking into the core of the star, and I'll show you an animation, we will see the core collapsing. Now, if you add to this recipe some rotation, then the collapse will occur not in a spherically symmetric way, but rather a donut will form, and there will be an axis of rotation, and material will collapse inwards most easily along the axis and with more difficulty along the equator because it's being held outward by the centrifugal forces associated with rotation. You know, when you're at one of these amusement parks and you're on one of these rotating wheels, you know, you're, you're plastered to the side of the cylinder and you hope it doesn't stop rotating, at least when you're, you know, off like that because you'll fall. But anyway, so it's harder for material to fall in if it's rotating. And moreover, this area can get cleared out and material can easily escape along this direction if there's some mechanism accelerating it, whereas it's difficult for it to escape along the equator. So if you have a massive rotating star that's collapsing, then it'll naturally form an axis along which a jet of particles and radiation might emerge, like this. And this jet could pummel its way through the remaining gases of the star, break loose through the surface, produce two oppositely directed laser beams, almost like this, although I do not mean to imply that it's laser radiation. I just mean that it's two well-directed beams. Okay, but it's not, it's not exactly the laser mechanism. And if you're looking along the line of sight, so the Earth is here somewhere or there, then you would see a tremendously bright burst. But if you're looking from the side here, then you wouldn't. So if you're looking along the jet axis, you would see something really bright like that. All right. And if you were looking from the side, then you'd see a more or less normal supernova. So now let me show you the whole animation, having walked you through it. So now we're going to first peer into the core of this massive star. Right, so we're taking a view. Now it's going to start collapsing. The whole thing is rotating, so a rotation axis forms. Material is accelerated along that axis, pummels its way through the star, and eventually bursts through the surface of the star, producing two oppositely directed jets, which don't look like much unless you're looking along their line of sight to the jet, in which case you would see a very bright flash. Okay. So this then is a so-called collapsar model of these uh, of these gamma ray bursts, and um, numerical simulations with supercomputers of how this jet might pummel through the star show these details, which are still controversial. But it shows you how a jet that's sufficiently powerful can make its way through a star, blast through the surface, and still remain reasonably well collimated. That is kind of like a stream of water flying out of a hose. Okay, It's not just going off in every direction. It's still pretty well collimated. So that's the idea. And the easiest way for a jet to make its way through a star is if that star 
doesn't have all that it started its life with. I mean, you know, a massive star consists mostly of hydrogen. But if that jet had to pummel its way through this extensive envelope of hydrogen, that would be hard to do because there's many times the mass of the sun of hydrogen here, and that's hard to do. So it would be better if that hydrogen were gone. All right? It would even be better still if there weren't a helium layer to have to pummel through because the more stuff you have to fight against, the less power the jet will have when it finally emerges, right? So it'd be better still if you only had a carbon-oxygen layer and then the other layers of heavy elements that I talked about in, in my lecture yesterday, okay? might be even better if the carbon and oxygen were gone as well. So the best bet for the kind of massive star that's undergoing this phenomenon is the so-called stripped core collapse supernova. Not just an ordinary type 2, but a stripped object. And there are two ways in which an object can lose its outer envelopes of gases. One way is through winds of its own. Very massive stars tend to expel their outer envelopes of gases near the end of their lives. We see this. This is an actual Hubble picture of an aging massive star gradually ejecting in a relatively nonviolent way through a wind or a series of burps. It ejects this outer envelope, leaving only the inner core. Or in cases where the star isn't massive enough to do this on its own, it could accomplish the same feat by transferring its material to a gravitationally bound companion star, if such a star is bound to the star. Obviously, if the star is alone, it can't do this. But if it's got a companion, it can dump some of its material to the companion and hence rid itself of its hydrogen and even its helium or maybe even its carbon and oxygen. All right? So that's the idea. You have a stripped star whose core then collapses. It's also rotating, so it forms this axis blowing out two jets, and the rest of the star then expands as a more or less normal supernova. Now, exactly how the jet is produced and collimated, directed into this narrow beam, is still controversial. One way to make it narrow is to have this disk of material form a funnel along which the material escapes. That's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is that associated with this collapsing inner part of a star, there's a strong magnetic field, and that magnetic field can channel material along its axis. And support for that hypothesis came two years ago, quite accidentally, when a satellite known as RESI was studying the sun. It was studying gamma rays coming from the sun, and while pointing at the sun, a gamma ray burst happened to go off in about the same direction. And it was within the field of view of this RESI satellite. And it was able to measure a property of the radiation that told the astronomers using this satellite that immense magnetic fields were involved in the explosion of this particular gamma ray burst. So that lends some credence to the hypothesis 
that not only funnels of matter, but magnetic fields help channel material along a preferred axis. Now, I have a demo that helps illustrate this. If you could raise the lights a little bit. I have here a demo that's similar to my basketball but plus tennis ball demo of yesterday. A little bit of lights, please. Um, but in this case, what I have is a, a little bottle of yogurt, okay? And I'm going to open it up here. So here's this yogurt. And I'm sorry I didn't bring my basketball for those of you who missed yesterday's demo, but yesterday I bounced a basketball with a tennis ball on top of it and try this at home. If you release them at the same time, the tennis ball goes to a great height because it gains some of the energy of the basketball. Here what I'm going to show is that when I drop this bottle of yogurt, it is constricted in such a way that it's hard for the yogurt to go outwards through the bottle, of course, because there's plastic there, but it's relatively easy for it to go along the axis where there's nothing or very little blocking it, like in those models that I was showing where you have an axis or rotation of this collapsing star, and it's much easier for material to escape along that axis than perpendicular to it. So watch closely now while I do this. Let's see. It works best if I drop it just perfectly. Ah! Well, I didn't quite drop it perfectly, but uh, I did drop it on my tie. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let, me tr let me try this again. Maybe it'll work better the second time. I hope, I hope ties can be dry cleaned. Um, okay, so, and pants, well, pants can be dry. So let me try this again, and this time I'll jump away after releasing it. So, sometimes I do this in class and it works just great, and it goes like five or six feet up, but, uh, alright, here we go. Well, it sort of worked. You, you saw it, you saw it going up, and, oh shoot, now I got it. Now I got it on the screen here. Okay, you know, I was told that it's okay to get stuff on the screen. I cleared this with the, you know, with the people uh, who are in charge, but they said to be sure to wipe it down before they roll up the screen, because otherwise, after a few days, the the smell of, you know, of of, uh, of yogurt that's been out of the refrigerator for too long will start permeating the room. Okay, that's enough for the lights, thanks. I think you get the picture despite the fact that the ejection didn't quite go as high as I had wanted it to go. So that's the idea. You have this thing here that gets ejected, either you know collimated by this nozzle or by magnetic fields or by some hitherto unknown mechanism. But otherwise, you have a more or less normal exploding star. So the next test of this hypothesis is that associated with at least some gamma ray bursts, we had better see supernovas, exploding stars. And in 1998, the first evidence came of a supernova being associated with a gamma ray burst. But not all astronomers uh, bought this evidence because the gamma ray burst that occurred in this part of the sky was a very wimpy gamma ray burst, and people said maybe it's not a true gamma ray burst, it's not one of the regular kind, it's some new 
possibly quite interesting class, but it is not representative of the really luminous, powerful gamma ray bursts. Well, doubts were laid to rest two years ago with a discovery of gamma ray burst 030329 in March of 2003. There is the optical counterpart of the gamma ray burst, and in fact, watching this thing develop over time and taking spectra and stuff showed that there was undeniably a supernova associated with this gamma ray burst. And in fact, it was the same kind of supernova as this little guy here. So that then added to the weight of evidence that this guy was indeed associated with a, a normal gamma ray, well, at least this unusually low luminosity gamma ray burst nevertheless had the same mechanism as um, a luminous normal gamma ray burst. So that's great. At least the long duration kind are associated with supernovae. And the details emerging from the study of those supernovae confirm that it is indeed these so-called type 1c supernovae that are associated with gamma ray bursts. Type 1 because there's no hydrogen, but 1c because this is not the 1As that I was talking about yesterday and will focus my attention on tomorrow, which are the exploding white dwarfs. This has nothing to do with an exploding white dwarf, yet it looks like a type 1 because it has no hydrogen, so it was given the name type 1C. And indeed, there's even some evidence that the supernovae associated with gamma ray bursts are, as I had hoped, even more stripped than the normal 1C. They might have only a thin carbon-oxygen layer, and that makes it even easier for the jet then to burst through. So I would say that for the long-duration gamma-ray bursts, we are now coming to the conclusion that they really do come from the collapse of massive stars at the ends of their lives. And you might say, well, then what does that have to do with black holes? I told you in last night's lecture that Generally, the collapse of a massive star leads to a neutron star, a bizarre creature indeed, having the density of an atomic nucleus and the size of a city, but not quite as exotic as a black hole. Well, yeah, so normal core collapse objects, normal massive stars, we think do give rise to normal supernovae that produce neutron stars. But gamma-ray bursts are a rare breed among massive stars where some of them appear to have properties that do not allow them to stop at the neutron star stage. Rather, we think, but we are not sure, that the collapse proceeds all the way down to a black hole. Maybe because generally the stars that produce gamma-ray bursts are more massive than the ones that don't, or have a particular amount of rotation or something. We're not sure yet. But it's quite clear that gamma-ray bursts are so rare that only about 2 or 3% of massive stars whose core collapse produce gamma-ray bursts. I mean, gamma-ray bursts are really rare. So all you need is 2 or 3% of these chaps to somehow avoid or bypass or move on past the neutron star stage all the way to the black hole stage. So this is still controversial, but most workers in the field are gradually moving in this direction, that what sets gamma-ray bursts apart 
from normal core collapse, in addition to the things I've already said, is that the compact remnant left behind is a black hole, not a neutron star. And a black hole, as I said yesterday, was an object where the local gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape. It traps everything within, within it, okay? So, so they're, they're black, but really there's some weird curvature of space-time like this. So, so that's what we think the long-duration gamma-ray bursts are. And you might say, well, do we have any evidence that black holes having masses of 10 or 20 or 30 solar masses exist? I mean, do we have any evidence that massive stars ever produce black holes? We do have independent evidence of this sort. There are some objects that have been found with X-ray telescopes and then followed up with other kinds of telescopes where you see a relatively normal star which is clearly in orbit around something which is causing the orbit to be very fast and very um, high velocity, like zoom, zoom, zoom. Yet, yet the thing that's causing the visible star to do this is, is invisible. It's not seen, yet it has a mass of 10 or 20 times the mass of the sun. And you can figure this out using Newton's laws of motion. And indeed, my group studied this particular object, although it's only one of many now, and using the Keck telescopes in Hawaii, we found that sometimes the visible star is moving away from us at 500 kilometers per second. A few hours later, it's moving toward us at 500 kilometers per second, then back away from us, then back toward us, and so on. So this star has an orbital speed of 500 kilometers per second and a period of only 8.3 hours. If you use Newton's laws of physics to compute what sort of mass must be producing this motion, it's roughly 10 times the mass of the sun. Yet there is no visible evidence of a star or anything else there that's 10 times the mass of the sun. And any normal stars would be very bright if they were that massive. So we think through arguments like this and others that these objects are black holes. And I don't have time to go into all the arguments that we have for why these things are black holes, but suffice it to say that we have independent evidence that stars of masses, few tens of solar masses, do occasionally produce black holes and not neutron stars. Maybe they are the ones that also produce the, the gamma-ray bursts. What we'd love to see is a gamma-ray burst that produces a supernova that then leaves behind a black hole pulling on some other star or something like that. We haven't seen that connection yet, but you know we, we'd like to see it, and maybe in the few years we will. So to finish things off uh, in the next few minutes, I've told you what we think long-duration gamma-ray bursts are. We know much, much less about short-duration gamma-ray bursts, so I won't say much about them. The problem has been that Hetty and BepoSACs and other satellites have not been able to pinpoint the location of short-duration gamma-ray bursts. They last for such a short time that by the time the X-ray telescopes look at them, there's nothing much to see, and so we don't really know exactly where they occurred. But there's enough information already to suggest that short-duration gamma-ray bursts may be a different sort of a beast. They might come 
from pairs of neutron stars which closely orbit one another and emit what's called gravity waves. When you have two dense, massive objects close to each other and they're orbiting, they emit ripples in the fabric of space-time. The actual shape of space changes in a ripply sort of way, kind of like when you throw a pebble into a pond of water and these water ripples propagate out. That's what happens to the shape of space when you have two neutron stars orbiting each other very closely. And that ripple effect carries energy away from the system and causes these two neutron stars to eventually come together and merge. Now, once again, there's a preferred plane. There's the plane, the orbital plane, which becomes the rotational, you know, equatorial plane after these things merge. And there's an associated axis of rotation. So if there's some sort of abracadabra then that, you know, accelerates charged particles, well, the preferential direction of acceleration would be along this orbital axis or this rotation axis because it's hard to accelerate charged particles through all this stuff, relatively easy to do it along the axis of rotation. And so the hypothesis still not much tested, is that the short-duration gamma-ray bursts arise from the merger, through the emission of gravity waves, of neutron stars. Or perhaps the merger of a neutron star with a black hole, as is shown in this animation. So there's a neutron star orbiting a black hole. It gets torn apart by the tides and then merges with the black hole and forms some jets by still mysterious ways. So that's the, that's the best buy scenario for the short duration gamma ray bursts, but it's far less substantiated by the data than the scenario that astronomers have come up with for the long duration gamma ray bursts. We hope to learn one heck of a lot more in the next few years because just this past November, a wonderful new NASA satellite has been launched, SWIFT. It can detect gamma-ray bursts, and it has on board an X-ray telescope and an optical telescope that will immediately image, that is, take pictures of, the general region of the sky from which the gamma-ray telescope detected gamma rays. It should provide us really accurate positions of gamma-ray bursts merely seconds after they occur. And so we hope to catch some short-duration gamma-ray bursts in the act and learn more physically of what they are. And then finally, you might be concerned that if a gamma-ray burst were to go off anywhere in the vicinity of the Earth, it might spell doom for us, just as a regular supernova going off in the vicinity of the Earth would not be good news. In the case of the gamma-ray burst, if you're anywhere along that beam, you would get fried, even if you were quite far from the gamma-ray burst. So this beam sterilizes everything in space along it. It's a very powerful beam, very, very powerful. Fortunately, the beam is narrow, like a laser beam. So you're unlikely to be within that beam. But it is calculated with considerable uncertainty that perhaps one 
of the many mass extinctions that are known to have happened throughout the history of the earth. Perhaps one of them, not probably that of the dinosaurs, perhaps one of them was caused by a gamma ray burst going off or a supernova going off in our vicinity. But you should be much more worried, if you're prone to worrying, about a comet or an asteroid hitting the Earth because that's much, much more likely than one of these gamma ray bursts or supernovae being in our vicinity. And uh, sometimes when I'm in a pessimistic mood, I think that um, we ourselves as humans are much more likely to destroy ourselves than than is a, a gamma ray burst. So that's about all I wanted to say tonight. Uh, I welcome your questions, and then I hope to see you back again tomorrow night. Thank you very much. I should mention, by the way, that um, a few of you, after my lecture yesterday, asked whether any of my lectures have been taped. In fact, they have. I did a whole series of lectures, twice actually, for the teaching company, teachco.com. One series was uh, 40 lectures on introductory astronomy taped in 1998. And then two summers ago, in 2003, I taped a 16-lecture update on all sorts of new things that have been going on, including gamma ray bursts and the accelerating universe and things like that. So if you're interested, there are many lectures of mine on on tape available from, from this company. Okay, yes? You can go ahead and say your question. I'll just repeat it. Or... Are all these bursts, uh, do they have uh, uh, the same uh, spectral signature or are there different signatures? Yeah, do they have the same spectral signature? It turns out that the short-duration bursts tend to emit, relatively speaking, more high-energy radiation than the long-duration bursts. Okay? But within the short or long-duration subclasses, the gross spectral characteristics are roughly the same. I can't tell you the detailed spectral characteristics because very few of these objects have been bright enough to form a good spectrum using the detectors that we have. You know, they last for just a few tens of seconds, and although they're very bright during those few tens of seconds, for a spectrum, you need a lot of photons throughout the whole spectrum in order to tell the shape with any degree of accuracy. We're hoping SWIFT will also help us determine the spectrum better as well in the next few years. Yes? Wow, you asked some good questions. Yeah. Oh, I just stepped in this. Uh, oh my. Okay. Well, anyway, that's a pink pink hole right there. Um, the question is, what you know? Can black holes merge together? And indeed, they can. And if you had two massive stars, each of which collapsed to form a black hole, and then if enough time went on and this spiraling procedure occurred for the two black holes, they would merge they would not probably produce a supernova or a gamma ray burst because there wouldn't really be an easy way to produce optical or gamma ray or any other form of electromagnetic radiation. However, two black holes merging together would be an excellent source of gravity waves. And a number of physicists are now looking for gravity waves in the universe 
using um, a telescope called LIGO, the Laser Interferometric Gravitational Wave Observatory, which probably won't detect anything, but it's a stepping stone to bigger and better gravity wave telescopes, LIGO-2, and eventually a space-based one called LISA, and we hope that they will detect gravity waves from things like merging black holes and also merging neutron stars. Now, the other part of your question was... Yeah, how would the gravitational force and mass be affected? Well, what would happen is the mass of the black hole that forms as a result of this merger would be roughly speaking the masses of the two black holes added together, but a little bit less because some of the mass is taken away in the form of gravity waves. And, you know, depending on exactly how they come together and all that, you can have more or less of these gravity waves being emitted. And so, you know, you'll end up with more or less of the sum of the two masses. And so once they merge and stabilize, you basically end up with simply a bigger black hole with a stronger gravitational field around it. And that's the, the simple answer to the question. Yes? Oh, yeah. Is it possible for more than two neutron stars to come together in this way, right? Is what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, could it create an even bigger bang in a sense? Yeah, you know, sometimes stars are in three or four star systems. And, you know, if each of those stars collapses to form a neutron star, eventually you get a little cluster of neutron stars there. In general, what happens is they merge in a pairwise way. So one pair will merge, and then another pair will merge. It's hard to get them to all merge simultaneously. So I would expect in general that that cluster would give rise to several separate bursts of this sort. It's just because it's hard to get them all to merge at the same time. Yeah, yes? Yeah. Right, yeah. And then extrapolating from that, how frequently do they occur in the galaxies? Yeah, okay, so that's a good question. Basically, how frequently do they occur in the whole universe? There's several answers to that question. Um, first, how frequently do they occur and are pointed toward us, and we just haven't noticed them because each of these satellites most of the time is only looking at a fraction of the sky and part of it is behind the Earth and so on. So, you know, maybe over the whole universe there's a few a day, something like that. Not much more than we're detecting, but, you know, possibly as many as ten a day, something like that. But intrinsically there must be many, many, many more than that because we only see the ones that are pointing at us and the beam is incredibly narrow. So depending on just how narrow it is, your correction factor might be anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 and certainly no less than 100. So we see no fewer nor no more than one one-hundredth of them, but possibly one one-thousandth or even one ten-thousandth. It's uncertain because we don't know exactly the beam width. So when all is said and done, astronomers have estimated that maybe roughly one every 20,000 years for a galaxy like our Milky Way. That's not a bad number. 
that's still considerably more rare than a regular supernova, which is roughly one in a hundred years, I said yesterday. Oh, you weren't here yesterday, but I said yesterday, a supernova goes off roughly once every hundred years in a galaxy. A gamma ray burst maybe once every 10 to 20 or 30,000 years. Okay? Yes? Um, how close would the gamma rays have to be to, inf to like, damage the Earth? Yeah, so that's right. Where are we safe? I mean, the, the calculation is much easier for something that explodes in a spherically symmetric way. Because then you just take the power and you, you know, average over a sphere and you know how much is hitting the Earth. In the case of a gamma ray burst, you know, the radiation is incredibly beamed. Just how beamed it is will dictate how intense it will be in the middle of that beam. Um, and, and it also will dictate what are the odds that you're within that beam. You know, you know, if it's a very narrow beam, then you're unlikely to be in it. So I think that if you're in the middle of the beam, you're dead no matter where you are in the galaxy. Okay? But by the same token, that means that most other directions are really quite safe. Whereas in the case of a supernova, no direction is safe, but a supernova would have to be quite close to you, within 10 or 20 light years, in order to have considerable immediate damage on the Earth. So the supernovae are more frequent, but you'd have to be closer to be damaged. The gamma ray bursts are much rarer, but anything in the galaxy within that narrow beam is going to be fried. So it's half a dozen of one, six of the other. Which would you rather be killed by? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, I thought you had one there. No, okay, go ahead. Is there a correlation on the direction of the galaxy or the angle of the galaxy become a burst rate? Uh, is there a correlation between the angle of the disk of the galaxy and the... You can see the disk. Yeah. Is there more gamma rays? Yeah, that, that's right. That's an interesting question. We don't think that the direction in which the gamma ray burst emits knows anything about the, the direction of the orientation of the galaxy. Okay, the star is just oriented whichever way it is. However, there's a huge selection bias, at least at optical and most other wavelengths, there's a bias against those that happen to be pointing along the plane of the galaxy because the plane of the galaxy is filled with interstellar gas and dust and those tend to attenuate optical and especially ultraviolet wavelengths and even lowish energy x-rays are attenuated. Now gamma rays and, and highest energy x-rays are not attenuated much but even they are attenuated a little bit but certainly optical and ultraviolet and even infrared is attenuated by dust in our galaxy. So the optical counterparts are much harder to find in those cases where the gamma ray burst was either shining through the galaxy in which it happened or the gamma ray burst happens to be along the direction of the plane of our Milky Way. We've detected gamma ray bursts along the planet plane of the Milky Way. In fact, you saw that there's no noticeable selection bias against those. That's because gamma rays basically don't care about the gas and dust. They make it through. 
But we hardly ever see the optical counterparts of those guys that are along the plane of our Milky Way because dust and gas within our own Milky Way extinguish that light. Okay? Yes. So, question over there? Is that a test of general relativity? Can that be used as a test? Yeah. The, the question was, the, the gamma-ray burst that was seen by the Resi satellite, is it a test of general relativity? If the gamma-ray burst had occurred sufficiently close to the edge of our sun, then indeed the, the light from that gamma-ray burst would get bent by the curvature of space produced by our sun, and that gamma-ray burst would then appear in to be in a, the wrong location. And once the sun moves out of the way, if we could then, months later, find a long-lived optical afterglow and find out exactly where the gamma-ray burst did occur, then one could measure that offset and, you know, you could use it as a test of general relativity. However, one doesn't really need to do that because we've already done that as far back as Sir Arthur Eddington in 1919 with optical starlight, where during an eclipse he photographed the sky and saw where the stars are, and then you know, six months later he photographed that part of the sky when the sun wasn't there and measured where the stars are, and they're a little bit displaced. Moreover, now you can do this much better using quasars and other bright objects where with radio telescopes you know exactly where they are when the sun isn't there. And then, you know, when the sun is there, you use the same radio telescopes to measure where the quasar appears to be. And these radio telescopes get wonderfully precise and accurate positions. And there you can see that the general relativity's predictions are beautifully verified using these angular deflection type tests. So in principle, your, your method works, but it would be one heck of a lot of work to do it for that one object when we've already done it for a bunch of equivalent sources, you know. Not really. Um, and we've already tested that the curvature of space is independent of the wavelength of light because we've done it with radio waves and optical waves, and so it should work for gamma rays as well. Right. If we had only tested it at one wavelength, you could say, well, doing it at gamma rays would test the hypothesis. And there are other hypotheses where the bending might be wavelength dependent. But a clear prediction of general relativity is that space bends light by the same amount, regardless of the frequency or the wavelength of light. But I would contend that that test has basically already been made. Moreover, we've sent satellites to the other side around the sun, and we get radio signals from them, and we see not only the angular offset, but there's also a time delay, because the path along which the waves travels in the presence of the sun is different in length than the path that they travel without the sun being there, and that difference in length translates to a difference in time, and I believe that time delay has been measured as well. So that aspect of general relativity has been beautifully tested. And finally, there's this binary pair of neutron stars called the binary pulsar discovered by Professor Joe Taylor here. In fact, he and his student, um, because of the discovery and their subsequent detailed study of this system, were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1993, I believe. They showed that 
the, this uh, orbiting pair of neutron stars is behaving in detail exactly the way general relativity predicts. So if general relativity is wrong, then whatever replaces it on macroscopic scales must have nearly the same predictions, I would say, uh, for the kinds of objects that we've tested so far. You know, so I think general relativity is right. It's clearly not yet complete at the quantum level. You need some theory of everything. But applied to things like neutron stars and black holes and stuff, I think general relativity is, is pretty darn, you know, proven. Although in science, I must emphasize, unlike in mathematics, you never have proof. We only have what we think is an ever better description of how the universe works. We never know for sure that this is what's going on. So, should we? Um, I think in view of the likely inclement weather outside, we probably ought to terminate the questioning, but let's thank Professor Filipenko for his superb lecture. Thank you. Thank you very much. For those of you that do have questions, I personally will be glad to hang around for a little while longer because my hotel is in walking, within walking distance. But some of you may have a treacherous drive home, so let's, let's terminate this now. Thank you again.